Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis. Continuing the conversations, the endless conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, as regular listeners of this show know, um, I'm very interested in uh, tracking uh, with a critical but sympathetic eye the uh, transformation of uh, psychedelics and psychedelic discourse in our very bizarre contemporary uh, moment. And uh, part of that, or a great deal of that, has to do with, of course, with watching how uh, psychedelics enter the mainstream as primarily medicines. Um, if an earlier era of psychedelic use, uh, both before the counterculture and during the counterculture, was associated with some psychological healing, for sure, no question about it, particularly in the 19. 19- 50s, uh, uh, people were trying to figure out how to make these into various kinds of medicines to cure both physical and psychological ills. But of course, uh, by the time the 60s rolls around, even before the, the hippies get their uh, their grubby little hands on uh, on LSD and other uh, sacraments, uh, people are already starting to recognize that there's something more to these compounds. It seems to go beyond a typical understanding of medicine involving spirituality, mysticism, and the nature of reality, the nature of consciousness, and the possibility of uh, radically critiquing contemporary constructions of society, uh, which is an element about psychedelics about which we hear very little these days as the rush for uh, mainstreaming them as medicines is on with uh, many different actors, many different agents, many different motivations, some of them I think quite uh, uh, healthy and positive, some of them more nefarious than we are as of yet ready to admit, at least we as the psychedelic community or people interested in psychedelics because uh, there's a sort of general excitement about their Finally, they're being recognized for their value. Finally, they're be, being seen as healing uh, compounds. And in so doing, we sometimes overlook some of the, uh, uh, the contradictions that are, go- that are going forward in terms of politics, in terms of spirituality, in terms of metaphysics, and in terms of those uh, social critical dimensions of psychedelic uh, use, which I think in many ways are being um, uh, radically ignored, uh, at least in the mainstream uh, discourse. I've, uh, ha- you know, we've been talking about this on the show a lot. I wrote a piece, uh, if you didn't, never saw it, on shakruna.net called Capitalism on Psychedelics, which uh, looks at one aspect of some of this uh, tension over psychedelic medicines and particularly their commodification and even transformation into patentable uh, medical procedures by for-profit companies. And I don't know how, however uh, cheery you are about capitalism, that still should strike a bit uh, odd to you uh, if you are already invested in a broader, wider psychedelic view. But to continue this conversation, I thought it would be really great to talk to somebody on the ground, someone who's doing psychedelic therapy, who's uh, uh, recently set up a um, a practice uh, uh, that's focused or that includes plant medicines as part of an overall um, uh, approach to healing and wellness. And I could think uh, of no one better than my friend Julie Megler. I met, uh, well, I met Julie a, a while ago, but I really got to know her um, as I intended uh, events thrown by a local group called Erie, the Entheogenic Research Integration and Education Group. Uh, which is a Bay Area nonprofit focused on uh, psychedelic research, but but with a particular emphasis, or at least this is how I uh, really encountered them, on the process of integration. 
the term integration is thrown around a lot these days for uh, good reasons, um, uh, because as people recognize that w- however wonderful or bizarre or sometimes very difficult your psychedelic experience is, if it doesn't actually become integrated into your life in some way or another, although it's not always easy to know what that means, uh, but if, if it just becomes an experience, then the tendency is to just re- try to repeat the experience without actually uh, changing and uh, whether or not you see psychedelics as primarily healing medicines or some other kind of sacrament, uh, that the uh, um, there's still a, 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 a kind of gap there. Yeah. And so Erie was setting up these wonderful integration circles that I participated in a number of times uh, where people would bring usually challenging experiences either during the experience or afterwards of the experience and in a kind of group uh, process, be able to share them, accept some some feedback and observations, and uh, it was really a, a quite a wonderful experience. So that's how I kind of first met uh, uh, Julie Megler, and um, I thought maybe we'd start out talking about that. So Julie, with no further ado, uh, welcome to Expanding Mind. Uh, thank you, Eric. This is my dream come true. I've been listening to your podcast for a few years, so when you reached out to me, it felt like I'd made it somewhere in life. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> no, it's it, it's nice. I actually just got a uh, one of my, you know, I occasionally get emails from people, uh, from f- people listen to the show who I don't know. And, you know, they, they're, they're really nice. They're like a, a little bit of fuel for the hamster wheel. And, uh, but <clears throat> recently this guy said that he had, he had gotten, the, the way he had found out about the show is some, some older fellow who, who lived in a, a, a mushroom-shaped concrete house that he built himself, had passed him a thumb drive filled with expanding minds to this guy, which I just, I love. It was almost like some kind of weird cyberpunk uh, pagan, uh, you know, transmission. And I just, I love the mushroom factor because I like to think about the show as kind of like, more like a mycelial network than a you know kind of obvious uh, shouting point. So I, I I quite I quite like that, and I, I love to uh, draw you into the draw you into the network. Um, so well, let's let's start out talking about about Erie. When you uh, set up uh, Erie with with Larry Norris, what what was what did you want to introduce? I mean, there's a lot of groups now. There's psych- psychedelic society maps. There's a lot of groups out there. What what did you want to um, focus on and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and also just talking about the integration aspect of it. Yeah, definitely. What I would say is Erie's kind of primary focus is holding two things. One is the community aspect of integration. So integration can mean a whole number of things, but the piece of it that's really lacking in our culture versus kind of traditionally in theogenic cultures is that community piece. People are kind of raised with mentors and peers, their elders right there with them in their community. And so they don't even need to focus on integration because they're all kind of in it together and already thinking about the container and the cosmology that these medicines open you up to. And so it's hard to integrate if you don't have people to be in it with you to either like help you understand an experience or put it in context or just share and be creative together. So a lot of what Erie's trying to do is create a, a community for people to come together in so they don't feel isolated as they're out 
um, exploring these realms and then going back to the environment that's work or their family or whatever it may be afterwards. And then another big primary thing for Erie is that it, it's really trying to stress the non-hierarchical um, as things are, you know, what's leading to legitimization of psychedelics right now is much of a, very much a medical model which inevitably means hierarchy. There's a facilitator, the therapist, the physician, whatever it may be. And it kind of takes out the collaborative piece. So how are we exchanging ideas and realizing that whoever or whatever we are, once you enter the psychedelic space, the entheogenic space, it's a level playing field. We all have something to learn. We're all novices. It doesn't matter if you've been a psychonaut your entire life. Once you're in that space, you can easily be humbled just as much as the newbie next to you. So how do we just exchange ideas um, and let go of kind of, like I said, the hierarchy? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it was really... A wonderful work to take part in um, for those reasons, because uh, I mean, you mentioned the sort of role of hierarchy in a, in a medicalized situation where there's a you know someone diagnoses you and they're doing there's a framework and there's a, a set of assumptions about what's supposed to happen. Um, you know, even in those Johns Hopkins studies, you know, everybody going in there knows they're supposed to have a mystical experience, at least according to how these people describe a mystical experience, which as a scholar of mysticism, I can tell you is not the whole story. You know, it's like already like you're in the situation where there's authority, there's ex expectations, there's a hierarchy. And the same is true in some, not all, but in some uh, more quote unquote traditional contexts too. You know, so many people doing ayahuasca are doing them in semi uh, traditional situations or this kind of new new neo-shamanic model, but also one where there's off, often a lot of uh, hierarchical impulses that manifest themselves as Westerners who are used to the guru model come into situations that don't really necessarily support that model, but then they, they idolize the, the, the shaman and they sometimes all too willingly adopt other forms of understanding the cosmology or efficacy or uh, you know, experiential uh, dimension of uh, the compounds and in a way lose their own both autonomy and I think an even more important part, which you're talking about, is the fact that we're all in this sort of together, but we nobody really knows what's going on. And that if we're going to come up with patterns, with things that work, that avoid some of the very obvious problems with hierarchy, we got to do it together and it's going to look like a mess for a while, you know? So... Why don't you talk about the, the structure of the integration circle that you guys kind of came up with or, or started to work with and why that helped facilitate the emergence of these kind of community negotiations and narratives? Yeah. So one thing also, I wasn't one of the founding members of Erie. I stepped into Erie about a year or two in. So the structure was actually created... Uh, with a gentleman with Larry and Adrian Aller and a few other folks. And it was meant to be somewhat based off of the 12 step model or also like kind of the council method. So what we do is, is we create a space for um, people to both share experiences and it doesn't necessarily have to be negative ones. It can just be questions people have curious places that they're wanting to explore, tools that they want to be picking up. 
Uh, and oftentimes it is a challenging experience because part of what brings us all back is uh, working through deeper and deeper of our own material. And so we have a period of time in which we people have the opportunity to share share an experience and then a period of time afterwards in which it's open up to the whole group for reflections. So people can kind of help people see patterns that they might not be aware of or bring in resources, books, uh, other communities in which to connect with practices that may be useful for them. And so then the wisdom is being exchanged within the group. It's not like anybody's up there and teaching about it. It's people exchanging ideas of what they've picked up on along their own spiritual path and the eugenic path, whatever it may be. And so that's the most basic structure is a period of sharing and then a period of exchange. Yeah. One of the, the, I think the most striking, one of the most striking exchanges that I, that I, that I was involved with in one of our circles was a, a young man who <clears throat> had come away from uh, a few experiences. I mean, I, 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 you know, I got the sense that he was a, a pretty, uh, I don't want to say naive user, but a young, a new user, a newbie, uh, newbie-ish, and had come away with some uh, convictions about a woman in his life who apparently was not returning his interest in her, at least visibly, but he came away from these experiences knowing that she was really actually destined to be his partner and that he just had to you know, whatever, keep insisting or wasn't exactly clear what the, what, the, what the method was. But in any case, it seemed that he was slightly, I don't want to say maybe deluded is too strong a word, but he had uh, at least gotten a sort of inflated view of the situation. And, and you know, I, I think we're all familiar with, you know, getting extraordinary convictions when we're in a, a, an altered state and coming out, you're going like, what do I do with that? Like, was that like a message? Like, I've gotten other messages that were really good. I've even gotten messages that seemed almost prophetic in, in anticipating something important in my life. And now I'm getting this really weird, I don't know what to do with this. And, you know, it's one of the problems of how to deal with knowledge and information and messages. And that's a you know whole side of, you could call it psychedelic hermeneutics. But in this situation, it was very interesting because you could kind of tell in the crowd, like a lot of people were like, ooh, this is a little bit off. Like this is this is a little bit of a problem. You know, like this is the kind of thing where it's not enough to just go, oh, that's your experience. Great. And move on or go, mm, cool. It was like, nah, there's something a little off here. But then what do you do? Because no one's a doctor. No one has authority, really. Uh, all we have is the author- the kind of you know, imminent authority of our own experience or our own self-presentation in that very moment. And it was really interesting to see how a couple of us responded to him in a way that that was outside of the normal kind of, I know something you don't because you're newer or whatever. And yet it was still like the community pushing back. Like it wasn't just like, sure, man, you go ahead and have your beautiful illusion and you know, pursue it to to your, yours and perhaps somebody else's harm or at least difficulty. Um, and that was a very interesting moment because I was like, oh yeah, there's actual real challenging stuff that comes up here beyond just the challenges that people have with whatever madness or depression or, or frustration or, you know, uh, other kinds of things that we can all kind of get on board. Because when you lean in that way, it's a little, there's some sort of uh, pushback. 
but I, I thought I found that a very encouraging experience, actually. Yeah, I mean, you speak to what's such a big piece of why we feel the community aspect is so important because essentially we all learn through relationship and how we relate to each other. And when you're in relationship with other beings, they can help point out blind spots that you're not seeing. They can kind of help you maybe discern in a way that you wouldn't otherwise discern if nobody was willing to sit there and kind of call you out on your shit in that moment. And so I really love that the, you know, it waxes and wanes within the eerie groups because since it's not a set group of individuals, you just never know what the conversation, but over time it's really evolved to, people who can really drop in in a deeper level and not just kind of passively let somebody fall into a huge blind spot of their own, but kind of help bring to light a little bit of what can hide in the shadow or beneath the surface for people. So I remember hearing about that group. I was in a different circle that night and I was just really impressed on the way you guys held that because it's true. That's what we're there for. That's part of what makes the community model work is not being afraid to kind of call each other out so yeah and, and it also brings back what i think one of the great um dangers of of psychedelic use and you know it happens to other, with other spiritual practices too although probably at a less intense rate uh, is what you could call inflation or diluted convictions um, mm-hmm. and there's a there's a real charisma to it and so that's one of the dangers with hierarchy is that if the, you know why does somebody want to be the top of the hierarchy? Well, sometimes they want to be the top of the hierarchy because they have these very strong convictions about their own vision, their own take on things, and that can cause a lot of problems. And the history of psychedelics and spiritual movements are littered with these these characters. And so it's I, I think you're it's really true that we need to balance. And you know, and there's always going to be those people, and sometimes they're great. Sometimes they can make very creative things happen, new ideas. You know, they can motivate people, motivate groups, come up with new methods, you know, suggest powerful ideas. But I think it's as going forward, it's it's really key to emphasize what you're what you've been talking about, which is the capacity of community to resist those kind of singular hierarchical individuals in a supportive way that then brings everybody forward. And part of that work is involves being able to recognize signs of inflation, signs of diluted conviction, and to kind of draw people back in a way, back into the collective conundrum. Look, we don't really know what's going on here. We don't, we can't really know the difference between a message from source or spirit and our own projection or our own kind of, uh, uh, you know, whatever, psychological stuff. It's, 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 if it's not impossible, it's extremely difficult, at least in some situations. And so what else can you, what, are the, what, what do you do? Well, you bring it back into a community, a conversation of peers and fellow searchers, uh, rather than resolving the anxiety produced by not knowing by accepting another hierarchical story. Mm-hmm. One of the things that this reminds me of is just that uh, the beauty of psychedelics is, is that they open us back up to the symbolic world. But people don't necessarily understand that, and they can oftentimes take what happens for them in their experience, what gets illuminated for them, and make a very literal translation to it. 
and their lives. And you can kind of see this happen for folks where they're kind of, they're not necessarily weaving these symbolic meanings and what they could be translating to into a more concrete way into their life, but they're kind of more sitting in that um, more cosmic opening of it. And it's exciting. It's exhilarating. And that's what they want it to be. And that's how they want to bring it back into this world. And the reality is, is that our jobs living here in this earth plane is to figure out how to bring that symbolic back into the concrete in a way that's um, meaningful in our lives and useful. And that you name something that's super true, which is that none of us really know. Sometimes making those translations is really confusing. So when we're in community, when we're in relationship with others, it can help us discern, kind of figure out how to discern, discern sorry, excuse me, um, where it lies. You know, like how, how should we be applying this? What does this translate to? What does this really mean? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's great work, you know. So I mean, we've already been having this really interesting conversation about the kind of psychological and therapeutic dimensions of integrating, you know, psychedelics into the the whole of our whole of our lives. But then, of course, you bring this whole other element in, which is the the medical element. I mean, you're you're a board certified nurse practitioner, working in psychiatry and family medicine, and you know, you set up this clinic sage integrative health uh in the east bay with a a a, a clinical psychologist so you, you're you're moving you're, you're now there's a whole other space of where your licensing your board certification your training your education your immersion in western systems or your ability to work with western systems is now kind of almost triangulating these sort of psychological and and, and spiritual aspects with sort of the overall within the overall kind of healing thing i i'm just really curious like you know given how much things are changing given all the different dimensions and different actors that are that are out there now given even the 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 richness of the psychedelic space in the bay area and the healing space in the bay area which is you know so developed and so you know uh crowded even uh when you came to thinking about what is what is sage going to be about like what are its principles how do we do something new how do we do something that's that's innovative that moves in the direction we want to see what were the kinds of things you were thinking about um you know and it's most basic principle for me there's kind of three avenues in which the world of psychedelics exists in right now, which is there's the very medical. So psychedelics can be used in terms of their biochemistry and their antidepressant effects. But then there's more of the psychotherapeutic route where psychedelics are used more as a, a lubricant for therapy. And then there's the spiritual, uh, more transpersonal level. And what I found was that as you know, things are having to go through the medical lens in order to reach mainstream culture and being accepted by it, but that what's really critical and really important as things are making the transition into the above ground is how do we actually hold all three of those approaches? Because working just in the spiritual realm doesn't necessarily we need to think about our modern context, the ways in which psychedelics can be most useful and beneficial. 
So in my mind, weaving the spiritual and the psychotherapeutic and the medical all together is really critical, but making sure that those spiritual aspects aren't being lost. And so part of the vision of why I wanted to create a clinic, Genesee and I both, was that we want to almost, as things are making the transition over, really hold the standard that it's not just one approach and we need to not lose track of what's at the heart and soul of psychedelics. You can't just pull it into the reductionist model, just the pure, pure clinical model, and not be tying in the kind of all the realms of which it opens up to and all the realms of which psychedelics have a history and thousands and thousands of years of tradition. So how can we weave those together in a way that's elegant and graceful and impactful, not just for our clients, but also for the kind of larger systemic, you know, changes that we wanted to be able to impact as well and carrying it all forward. So how does how does that look practically? Like what are, what are the the sort of pragmatic decisions you had to make about how to frame what you're doing, what things to what what services to offer, what services not to offer, how to I- integrate these other kind of more uh, expansive uh, ideals into the concrete work of dealing with people who are coming to you with particular problems, physical and psychological. Uh, what what were some of the concrete steps you came you've been working with to to try to make that a reality? Yeah, definitely. Well, I guess it might be helpful just so people out there don't get confused in terms of what we are offering is just to mention what we are doing and not doing because <laughs> I think sometimes people get confused around what's legal and not because we get inquiries for all sorts of things all the time. So. Right now, what's legal is ketamine-assisted therapy, and then we've been approved to be one of the expanded access sites for MAPS starting hopefully as soon as next spring or uh, summer for the MDMA for PTSD research research that's going on. So So that would be an expanded part of the, the phase three trials? Yeah, so once they're about six months into phase three trials, they can apply to the FDA for what's called expanded access. People might commonly know it as compassionate care. So when a new medication is being researched for cancer, for instance, people can have the opportunity to try a new research thing that's been proven safe, but is not actually on market yet. So while they're wrapping up the phase three trials, some people can get access to it who aren't necessarily clinical subjects in the phase three trials. So that's what MAPS is currently, like, as of right now, submitting the application to the FDA for. And it's more than likely that they'll be approved for it. And then there will be a series of six or seven sites that will be part of the first wave of expanded access. And then they're going to open it up to more, many more sites across the country. Great, but at, at currently, what you're what you're working with is ketamine, which is a, mm-hmm. a really fascinating development. That, in the sense that, while there's been you know a, a good deal of press about ketamine for for a number of years now, as it's you know remarkable uh, healing effects with you know clinical resistant depression and related uh, sorts of uh, uh, you know mood disorders, but particularly around depression, have been very very clear with all with many studies. I think there's been less awareness of the way and of how different ketamine is just because of its regulatory and legal status uh, in terms of people using it now in clinical settings for both psychological and other kinds of 
of, uh, of of needs and, and and problems, you know that while we've been paying so much attention to maps and the struggle to get certain compounds rescheduled, and now there's a struggle to get psilocybin kind of rescheduled, which you know I suspect probably will happen over over time. Uh, all the while, there's this other you know fellow in the room, this this funny non-indigenous, non uh, non-organic, you know, not from from nature. Uh, compound. It's invented in the 1960s. It's totally a product of modernity. It's it, it has this other dimension. It's an anesthetic. It's been used as an. I mean, it's a very different profile. It's a different, uh, you know, a set of receptors that it works on. It's not a serotonin, you know, serotonin a b- a booster twister uh, modulator. Uh, so it's a very different creature, and yet that's the creature in a way that is the front line of the integration of psychedelics into above board uh, therapy where, as we are standing now. So talk a little bit about this, this character from a, from the perspective of, of a healer and and a clinician. Yeah, definitely. So let's see with ketamine itself. Well, Psychedelics in general, what I like to think of them as is they kind of open up a window for opportunity for us to move into seeing where we can change. They provide the moment in which we can have a window of opportunity to establish new habits, relate to people in a new way, become a little bit more active in our lives. Um, And... What's unique about ketamine, most of us with most psychedelics, that window of opportunity lasts for a period of time. You're kind of in the afterglow for a couple of weeks. And what's interesting about ketamine is that that period of time is actually a lot shorter. There's an antidepressant effect that people may feel lighter from or relieved from that lasts for a few weeks if you're kind of holding it straight in that medical point. But that opportunity for kind of more spiritual inquiry kind of gets shut down almost immediately after the experience or within 24 hours afterwards. So kind of going back to your question of like how we're setting up and weaving everything into how we're um, applying things at SAGE is that we have this multidisciplinary approach where we have both traditional allopathic Western medicine in combination with holistic care in terms of our providers. So we picked people who are familiar with these realms, but are also um, really solid in their work in these different modalities. And that's everything from therapy and psychiatry to acupuncture to nutrition and um, herbalism and massage therapy and body work. And then as well as an naturopathic doctor. So what do we do? How do we hold the whole container of preparing people to open up into this realm, but then right away kind of shoo them into, okay, what are the modalities that are best for you to continue the inquiry, to continue the curiosity, to be wanting to make change? That's kind of how I think of the ketamine work as well. Um, yeah, and ketamine is very interesting in terms of how it's being used right now. You see everything from straight IV clinics that are just loading people up with ketamine, short infusion over the duration of an hour, strictly for its antidepressant effect. And then you're seeing 
the I have to give credit to Raquel Bennett right now. There was a conference this past weekend called the CREA conference. And the majority of the medical community is very strict. That is the only way to do ketamine. There is absolutely no medical value in having the therapeutic or psychedelic approach to ketamine. And she does a really wonderful job of holding the conversation of how do we start bringing the conversation into the medical community that usually has sees altered states of consciousness as addiction instead of seeing that altered states of consciousness can actually be used in a therapeutic con context. So she opens up that conversation a bit more. So then there's, even within that world, a conversation of whether or not low-dose uh, ketamine-assisted therapy is the best route to go. Um, so when you were coming up with your, with your protocols, uh, how did you, and because there are so many different options and so many different things that are happening, like you say, like there's the traditional one-hour approach, IV, and but there's you know there's lozenges there's different dosages and you know it, it, it responds so differently uh, to different uh, dosages I think maybe even in some ways more it's a it's a, an even more different drug at a low dose compared to a high dose than let's say psilocybin from a low dose to a high dose obviously the high dose is a lot more intense but I think ketamine is almost more different like it has different mo different potentials uh, at different dosages. And so there's this whole range. How, how did you come up with uh, the protocols that, that you guys decided to use? Yeah, so we mostly are in the low-dose range to the psychedelic range. And it's, it's so dependent on the person and what their needs are. Like the, the problem with holding this idea that you need to have a mystical experience in order to have... Uh, change is that it kind of holds people still in this passive role of just like, I'm going to have a mystical experience and everything's going to be better the next day. And it doesn't allow people to actually sit in what's uncomfortable for them and make them want to be more proactive about it. So for some individuals who maybe have had a lot of high dose experiences, I've found that bringing them down into the lower dose psychotherapeutic range and working with them and helping them process and talk about their walls and their barriers a bit more is hugely beneficial. Or even for various forms of trauma, some forms of trauma, it's really helpful to take people into the more spiritual dosage range. But if somebody has, for instance, dissociative trauma, working at the higher dissociative doses could actually throw them into a fear response. So, it's, it's a bit of a getting to know each individual and where they're at and where their defenses are and where they're struggling in order to figure out what's helpful. But in general, it's often, especially for people who've never experienced altered states of consciousness, useful to work in a low-dose range and then make their way up as their body feels safer and they get to build a relationship to ketamine in the higher dosage ranges. Because I feel like it doesn't matter if it's a chemical or a plant, there's some sort of being or something for you to develop a relationship to and get to know as you work with it more. Yeah, I think that's a, I mean, it's a great model. I mean, we forget that that when we talk about a being that you get to know or or work with or uh, an entity or however you want to think about it, it it's not just a, a kind of supernatural or or you know, pre-modern way of thinking about it. And really, you're just talking about 
having a, a, a learning relationship. It's it's that it's not mm-hmm. like it's it's not like you're getting a drug that's changing something. It's like you're opening up the possibility of a learning experience that in order to you know ex- in order to work with it as a learning experience, you look at it as something that that's opening something up that you have to integrate and where you're too far, what's not enough. What does it want? What do you want? What's the difference? You know, I mean, the, in a way, it's just a very helpful way of framing uh, a learning process. But I, but I want to get back to the, 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 this point you made that some people who have trauma, and especially dissociative trauma, or have, have reacted to trauma through a, a pattern of dissociation, the dissociative uh, dimension of, of, of ketamine isn't necessarily, the, you know, it brings up a, a, a new wrinkle and that you can even have a kind of fear response because one of the things that seems really interesting about ketamine in comparison to, to other psychedelics is that at high doses, it's, it's rarely very uh, threatening. Uh, you you know you know there are ex- exceptions. There's always exceptions, but in the sort of non-traumatized community or sort of body of of lore or experience reports associated with ketamine, even very strange experiences are often exper- are often kind of not that hard to embrace. So there's there's less of the the fear or resistance or uh, even terror that you might find on a high dose uh, psilocybin trip. Uh, for example. And that was one of the things I wanted to ask about. Um, but clearly from what you're saying is that that's not always the case. And I'm, I'm curious, how, how does that get navigated? Or, or even how does that fear kind of manifest? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, traditionally, and one of the reasons why ketamine, I think, can be so helpful is that you name something is that it also dissolves the ego quite a bit, like traditional psychedelics, but it can tend to do it in a much softer and gentler way and maybe not as intensely or abruptly as other psychedelics do. And I think it's a bit of a nuance within the world of trauma work in terms of dissociation. If people are living in a high fear state, anything that's going to, um, you know, ketamine can kind of blast people past the fear of loss of control. But if your body's standard way of dealing with fear and loss of control is to just completely check out, then going into a dissociative state, because ketamine is also a dissociative psychedelic, almost just reinforces a coping mechanism that currently isn't serving you. So in terms of long-term benefit, is it, is it helpful for you to try to do healing work in a state of which is already kind of a coping mechanism that's no longer useful? But I think in general, that's one of the reasons why ketamine is pretty safe to use versus other psychedelics is because it can throw people into that ego dissolution, those more spiritual realms without it just shattering people's kind of entire sense of being in psyche. Now, I was, I was interested also what you, what you mentioned, which I had not thought about, is that there's sort of a consensus that the window for spiritual or deeper psychological work after the experience is much shorter with ketamine than with other psychedelics. You know, I could t- maybe I, I take an ayahuasca and there's, I have weeks of an afterglow where I could be working with it, but ketamine seems to be offer a shorter window. What, what do you think of, is, is, what's that about? Is it something, 
about the phenomenology of the experience? Is it something about the way the drug's operating on the, the nervous system? How, how do you interpret that? I think of it, the way that I understand it or contextualize it at least, is that, you know, it's an anesthetic. So it has a, an amnesic effect. It kind of makes it, people often get come out of ketamine experiences and like, well, that was weird. That was crazy. But they don't necessarily remember all the details. So I think the not being able to be as intimately curious or be able to be as intimately involved with the imagery and the insights and everything post-experience is the reason why. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but an, another thing I'm going towards the, the lower dose is that uh, low, low dose ketamine has, a, has, has very unusual, uh, sometimes quite delightful and amusing effects on the body. Um, you know, as you're moving into, you know, like a, a full deep spiritual dose is, you know, at some point you basically temporarily quit the frame and you can kind of feel it sort of, you know, collapsing into the floor and then there's no floor and then you're, you know, floating free. But at lower doses, there's this pliability, a kind of playful gooeyness uh, that sometimes has a kind of, you know, like dancing robot quality or a, it's it's a very strange kind of space as the as the anesthetic dimension of it kinds to f- begins to free up conventional patterns of inhabiting the body or feeling the body that must be a very rich space to explore from the perspective of of you know somatic healing technologies or techniques and and ways of working through psychological issues through the through the body mm-hmm. yeah definitely it can open up i know i can give a personal example of working in that range that i found hugely beneficial for myself which was that um, I had a mentor or teacher tell me how uh, the places in our body in which we uh, are contracted is where we're holding unintegrated parts of ourselves. And I'd had this experience on ketamine and I was having a lot of contraction in my body in various places. And I was trying to understand it and trying to understand it. Okay. Okay. What's this unintegrated piece that's just sitting there, which is sitting there. And what came through in the experience was actually that, um, doing the healing work that I do in the way that I relate to people. And I'm kind of holding other people's stuff that when I let other people's unintegrated parts of themselves cling on to me, it gets even more lodged and stuck and hard for me to move because I actually can't integrate their stuff for them. If that makes sense. So then it just gets lodged in my body in a way that ends up being really difficult to clear. That was kind of something fun and insightful that I learned in that kind of mid dose range. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know that that's a common issue with, with healers uh, is just, you know, whether they're, you know, shrinks or body workers, or even, you know, people just do massage, uh, is that they get this stuff in their body or in their field. And it's not altogether clear how to, how to get rid of it. I mean, that's another example where, you know, you turn to traditional medicine and there's all sorts of techniques for clearing and, and, and freeing up and, and transmitting difficult energy, you know, through the body into an object, into the ocean, out into space, 
you know, through breathing. You know, there's a lot of ways of, of working it once you like accept that imagination that the, that it is a kind of thing that you got to kind of deal with as opposed to it just being a, an idea or some sort of, you know, a way that a more Western person would be like, wait, how am I supposed to think about how did I wait? I didn't pick up anything literal. It's not like a virus, but uh, it, it seems like that's something that, that a lot of healers come to come to accept uh, regardless of their of their, you know, mixture of, of Western and other uh, modalities. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting intersection. I feel like also the ways in which other modalities work in combination with, with ketamine. I just, ketamine has this ability to kind of go in and smooth out the nervous system and just kind of make it, instead of being so activated and wiry, just feel a little bit more settled. And I feel like if in that window of time post ketamine experience, you work with some body work, some massage, or even acupuncture, if you can keep those channels open and just the nervous system can continue to smooth out more deeply if you continue to support the work that the ketamine just kind of laid out um, with the additional modalities in the few days to a week afterwards. Yeah, that totally makes sense to me. And it also seems to sidestep you know, one problem that I see, you know, probably with, with therapy, with psychedelic therapy in general, but probably even maybe a little bit more so with ketamine, because it is so plastic and, and one can be so consumed by insights or, you know, even like the way that music on ketamine is often just extraordinary. You know, you can put on something you might not actually like very much. You said, oh, it's, this is amazing. I, it's this whole world or whatever. There's a kind of Intent, a kind of plastic intensity that sometimes concerns me when the the framework is largely talk therapy, because even uh-huh. if the the uh, therapist is being very you know low key and not laying down a trip, uh, both the temptation of the therapist and the person to like kind of come up with a solution or reframe some problem, and in that kind of linger in that, that afterglow to sort of come up with some new ideas, some of which might not be that helpful uh, or even later obstruct, obstructive to people because people want, you know, a new way, a new frame that can let them be free of things. And it's a wonderful feeling, but, but over time, it seems that a lot of these things are more intractable uh, and that basically just working on the level of the body and saying, look, we let's, wh- who knows what's going on psychologically? Who knows what's going on in terms of the symbolic? That's not even really my job. But my mm-hmm. job or my op- or the opportunity here is to sort of integrate the, the physical, the psychophysical dimension of psychedelics into the post-psychedelic body to allow that kind of process to continue to be available and then letting the person find their own way through whatever that's going to bring up rather than have a kind of idea about it or some language about it or some psychological reframing or some other kind of thing, which you can, yeah, obviously can be helpful. But this approach to my mind just strikes me as even more potentially helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, you named something that I think is really critical to differentiate, which is also like in this like psychedelic assisted therapy model, um, there's a different approach when somebody's in the experience versus after the experience. I think it's really critical to be really following the person 
and what their curious exploration is, whether it be music at that moment, if they want to talk to talk, but if they're wanting to talk for that period of time, because it is so suggestible to be very non-directive, you're not necessarily trying to help somebody totally process things in that moment, as much as if they're revealing things to make note of it, to kind of assist them in that curiosity and exploration versus trying to kind of come to conclusions about their you know, relationship to their parents or this, that, or the other. Um, so yeah, you really kind of nailed it there in a huge differentiation versus, you know, days afterwards, if you want to talk about it more deeply and process it a bit more, that's fine, but really take advantage of how the medicine, how they, you know, in this instance, ketamine can be used in, as an ally and a guide for that individual. And it's their relationship. You as the therapist is an outsider. So you're just there to witness their kind of dance together. So do you have when you when you think about, you know, the 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 people who you who you know or you hear about or you study who are who are already practicing with with ketamine, including the things that are not following very, you know, Bay Area models of healing and, you know, that are more uh, medical or traditional. But then also just even th looking ahead at like, well, we have a situation where if you have a certain kind of licensing, you're able to use uh, ketamine in these situations. Do you have sometimes concerns about how, you know, weird some things might get if, if people are not honoring that very delicate place of suggestibility and non-directed uh, behavior? Or do you kind of trust that the sort of culture that's emerging of psychedelic-assisted therapy will be able to largely keep those uh, sort of negative possibilities at bay? <laughs> I think I'm in a combination of very excited and terrified at the same time. <laughs> um, you know, I go to conferences like the one I went to this past weekend, Korea, and I just feel really inspired. And I see that there's a lot of people out there that are really holding this in a important way of the highest standard of what I feel is important ethics to be practicing. Um, and then you hear about organizations already setting themselves up to be able to take big money and profit hugely against profit hugely and how can they really be holding a high standard of ethics with their clients on the ground when everything is kind of about how much money they can make um so I definitely have my concerns, but then I also think back, you know, look at traditional cultures. We're constantly facing the problem still of people sexually taking advantage of their clients and doing all sorts of things that are unfortunately part of the human condition. So it's not to say that that's okay by any means, but I don't know if we need to do any more work than we already did to hold people accountable and responsible to be working with people in an ethical way. I think we're going to run into the same problems that have been there for a long time, but the difference is, is now people have much more agency to speak out about it. It's much more in the spirit of the collective to be calling people out when they're not behaving ethically. Whereas I think before people often felt much more silenced because of being afraid of the taboo of speaking out against somebody and how that might lead to the, you know, the rest of the people in their small town um, kind of ostracizing them if they spoke out about some unethical behavior. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I mean, that, that part of this new world 
uh, of psychedelic therapy is also going to be um, influenced directly and shaped directly by this sort of new world of more community feedback, uh, whether it's um, you know, accusations of abuse or criticism or Yelp reviews or the whole thing. I mean, we're in a very different space in terms of how the community, you know, or a form of community can feedback on an individual practitioner. Um, I have one, uh, two questions left. Uh, one is about this issue of cost. I mean, as far as I understand it, um, ketamine, you know, itself is very inexpensive. So, <coughs> excuse me, how do you deal with the issue of cost because some therapists are going pretty high, uh, but that obviously limits its applicability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It was uh, you nailed nailed it just now, and that I was kind of thinking about what are the big things that I want to be leaving people with about what's important to hold in the psychedelic atmosphere right now, and one of them is this issue of accessibility. Right now, the psychedelic community is predominantly white upper middle class and people who can afford it. So how do we work with this? How do we um, make it more accessible? And it's difficult in that insurance companies, as of right now, you can get reimbursement for the medical evaluation and the preparatory sessions and even the integration sessions, depending on who's facilitating them. But uh, the ketamine session itself is not reimbursable because it's off-label use for ketamine. It's not on-label use for, for what it's indicated for. So it gets expensive to be able to um, hire somebody for one-on-one work. So a couple of things that we've been thinking about at SAGE is one, a sliding scale model, and that anybody that wants to enter in in the, in the program uh, actually fills out a questionnaire. And those questions help assess people's um, um, you know, kind of abundance and what they can afford based off of not just what their yearly income is, but what are their overall resources in terms of family support? Do they have any other debt? Do they <clears throat> kind of, what is their social support structure and, and various other things? Are they part of non-dominant um, identity groups and kind of using people who can afford the higher end of the range to hopefully then subsidize people on the lower end of the range being able to get treatment. But even in the low end of the range or sliding scale, that's still a lot of money out of pocket for people to for people to be able to pay for a whole package. So um, Genesee and I have already been in conversation and looking into grants with a few different people. One of the blessings of being in the Bay Area is that, you know, there's a lot of people, whether it be cryptocurrency or technology and startup world that, that have some money who are really motivated about psychedelics and how do we create a fund to try to offset some of these uh, services for people so that um, people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford them would be able to afford them, as well as also when thinking with expanded access, how do we make training for therapists or individuals that want to be able to be, provide these sorts of therapies who also are part of non-dominant groups can get the training so that, you know, if a genderqueer person of color comes in and is needing support, like I'm, you know, I can hold a lot of compassion and empathy to a point, but I'm not going to be able to hold the container for them in the way that they really deserve to get healing and treatment. So how do we also provide training for individuals so that 
the people across the whole spectrum have more access to these psychedelics. Well, it's great to hear you asking about those questions. We just have a couple of, of minutes left, and I, I wanted to emphasize one final element is in the description of Sage Online and in, the, and in your approach, as with, with Erie, you, you, you really emphasize community. And, but how does, that look, how does that play out in the context of, of setting up a, a, a center and doing the kind of work that you're, that you're doing? How do you rope? I mean, you're already asking these kinds of community-based questions in terms of access, but are there other ways in which community is brought forward in your, in your practice? Yeah, definitely. I think the, one of the pieces is very much an open practice and cooperative model. So we're really wanting to mirror um, this idea of how do we share information? How is it that what we're learning, we really see SAGE as more of like a prototype so that like we are going through the gauntlet of learning all the mistakes and how can we help other people create good quality places? And I'm really appreciative. There's Healing Realms and Polaris or two other ketamine um, organizations here based in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the three, all of us from those three organizations have gotten together and to share resources, share consent forms, legal advice, and various things. So that's another way in which the way we've set things up is how do we create a cooperative atmosphere? How are we helping each other elevate as we're moving through these things? So whether it's a conversation around capitalism or not, it's an even bigger conversation around are we creating a competitive atmosphere or are we creating an atmosphere in which we're all kind of in this together and trying to hold this container um, together? Well, that, those are those are wonderful words, and I think we're going to end with them. Uh, Julie uh, Megler, thanks so much for joining us on Expanding Mind. Thank you, Eric. You have a lovely day. All righty. Uh, yeah, once again, Sage Integrative Health is out there on the Internet. Check it out. And until next week, keep your minds open. Mm-hmm.